Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is episode 28. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. Well, this is it. The final chapter of the re-edited, remastered, and redone version of Outcast. As always, I'll be cross-posting this episode on the original Outcast podcast feed, and if you're listening to this there, I'd encourage you to subscribe to the new feed over at kickit.yo5.ca or at podchaser.com. So, without further ado, let's get into chapter 27, the last chapter of Outcast. Outcast, a novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 27 My world became motion. From dawn until dusk, my days became a whirlwind of activity. Between school, work, and training, it felt as though I had no time to simply stop and catch my breath. Any time I had to myself felt like a waste, that I should be doing something to further my goal to see her again. I would have forgone sleep if it meant I could go that extra step, but my body always won out, and I was more than ready for bed when I returned home. On those days when school and work conflicted, I would spend the evening poring over my tablets, working furiously through any lessons I missed. Those nights were tough, as there was a significant difference between seeing a lecture on a screen and being there for it in person. If only I didn't need the money. My perseverance with my studies paid off, though. It only took two attempts to challenge my grade and advance to my proper level. It was a mixed blessing, being in many of the same classes as my friends again. I say mixed, because while they could acknowledge my presence there, they couldn't interact with me as much as they used to. During that first week in my proper grade, I was confronted several times by many clan and non-clan folk alike, all of them remarking how much I looked like, well, like myself. Thankfully, Risha backed my new identity as Darian Kane with several emotional performances in front of the class. That helped ease a lot of the suspicions out there, but we all kept our public social interactions to a minimum. Away from school, though, things were vastly different. When Max and Risha returned from their vacation, they tackled me to the ground and hugged me hard enough to crack a rib or two. Risha cried so many tears into my shirt that I had to change at least twice. She would finish for a bit, then the tears would start anew, and she tackled me yet again. They told me how all my friends used to take turns keeping vigil over me during my coma. They'd read me stories, talked about their day, and when they could, they even spent the night. In their defense, Max said no one wanted me to wake up alone. What did I ever do to deserve such loyal friends? To this day, I still don't know. I assume that those who kept watch over me included Shiana and a few other clansmen at the start. There was little point in asking after them, though. Those who knew Dallin Calamar wasn't dead knew his status and also knew their duty should Darian Kane's true identity ever be revealed. It hurt that my betrothal to Shiana was no more, but having spent the summer in Teki's arms helped ease that pain immensely. 
As for Shiana, I was sure she'd find someone new. If the Winter Stalkers and the Tiger's Paw clans still wanted a political marriage, perhaps Teeler or Richard were up to the task. I elected to continue my increased training regimen even after returning to work. I couldn't really explain it, but of all my activities, stepping into that studio was becoming less something to look forward to and more something I craved. Krasa altered his daily routines with me, switching between physical and mental exercises, but ensuring that the delicate balance was maintained. On the mental days, I continued learning to center myself and to keep the beast contained. He said the key to the shift was to let the beast out on the man's terms alone. It was the delicate balance between the beast and the man that allowed the man to remain in control after the shift. He also said I had a lot to catch up on in that regard thanks to his enthusiasm in seeing my strength fully realized. The centering exercises didn't take that long to start having an effect on me, and it was at the same time exhilarating and frightening. As I ran through my forms, I could feel my mind begin slipping into something. It felt like an altered state of consciousness, as though something lifted the veil that covered my senses. My hearing sharpened. My nose detected the smallest change in the air. Even my whiskers felt like the center of a sensory spider web. With closed eyes, my surroundings were clear and perfectly defined. In this state, I was convinced I could walk around blindfolded flawlessly. That was the exhilarating part. The frightening part came when I stepped into the combat circle. Nothing changed for me physically as I squared off against my opponents. My win-loss ratio was still around 50%, but the margin by which I lost was growing slimmer. My wins were decisive and, if I believed Krasa, bloody. He often remarked that had my opponents been true flesh and blood, my body would be a gory mess after my usual ten rounds. It was hard for him to keep his enthusiasm muted in his voice, but I began noticing it. I took it on as a personal challenge to at some point make him break out of his veneer of serenity and make him either shout or cheer. Perhaps it was morbid of me, wanting to impress him with greater displays of ferocity, but this altered state I began feeling also made me look at my opponents differently. To me, they seemed more, well, basic than a fighter. I watched how they moved, noting every step or misstep. I watched their ears for the slightest flicker, their eyes to blink, their whiskers to even twitch. Had they a scent, my nose would have detected any sign of fear or hesitation. It felt primal. Over time, my opponents felt less like adversaries to me. They seemed beneath me, or at the very least, someone daring to challenge my dominance. In a word, they became more like... prey. I remember. I remember the day. Three months and five days after she left, he came. The knock at the door was even, not the timid knocking of someone who shouldn't be there, and not the frantic pounding of someone desperate or determined to confront me. By comparison, the knock was courteous. As such, I felt no real need to rush to the door and open it. 
I fully expected it to be Grandfather, come to check up on me after the previous night's rather horrendous snowstorm. I remember having a tough time falling asleep that night. The wind howled and the trees that normally sheltered the dwelling from most of the elements scraped endlessly against the roof and walls, making any notion of a peaceful sleep impossible. As I approached the door, I dreaded having to carve out a walkway from the dwelling to the tree line where the snow wasn't so deep. The moment I opened the door, though, all that dread vanished. He was a cougar, about half a head taller than me and lean as most cougars were. His muzzle bore a calm, neutral expression, though his eyes resembled those of someone who traveled a long way in his life. His stance seemed relaxed. Whatever his intent, it wasn't for violence. You, he said, his voice low and calm. You are Dallin? Who wants to know? I countered, my ears beginning to lower. If this Paklo was some clan-hired blade, I'd make sure that if I fell, I'd take a good-sized chunk of him with me. In response, he simply held his hand up in a gesture of submission. Then I watched as his eyes began to glow a ghostly white. I lowered my guard. I knew he hadn't come to fight. I most likely would have been dead the moment I opened the door if he had. Who are you? I asked. I motioned for him to come inside, but he shook his head. I come with a message, he replied, his voice growing somber. He reached into his coat pocket and withdrew a small drawstring pouch. I took it and examined it. There was nothing overly remarkable about the pouch. The leather felt well-worn, and the stitching lacked that mechanically precise look and feel. Someone had made this pouch by hand. Gently, I pulled it open and emptied its contents into my palm. At first it seemed to be nothing more than a collection of white and dark beads and what looked like teeth. They were all bound together by what looked like a thin strip of leather. I realized then that it was a necklace of some sort. I picked it up and used my fingers to spread it out. It was primitive-looking. Almost tribal. You... you're from Tanaya, I said finally. The cougar nodded. And this? I asked, holding up the necklace. It is from Tekana, he said slowly. Tekana. You mean Teki? I asked. He nodded again, and I felt my heart swell. A gift? No, he said after a moment. It is... it was hers. I cocked my head slightly. I could feel a change in the air. A sudden wave of foreboding washing over us both so hard that my whiskers felt they were blowing in the wind. Was? The swelling I'd felt only moments before turned to a pounding in my chest. What do you... She... She is no more, the cougar said with a bowed head. Time stopped. My ears heard his words, and my whiskers knew they were true. But my brain just refused to process what he just said. It was strange, in a way. In the movies, or on a show, when someone learns of a loved one's death, there was always an immediate reaction. The tears immediately begin to flow, or they scream-slash-roar out to the patrons, demanding to know why someone they loved had been so cruelly taken away. The person usually crumbles into a quivering heap as the background score builds up to a tragic crescendo of loss. Reality was far different. 
The numbness came first, followed by the wash of goose pimples underneath my fur. I can't remember when any kind of sensation returned to my body, but when it did, I remember clearly how cold the air felt. My heart, even with the augments designed to keep it from overstressing, still pounded mercilessly in my chest. All I heard over my ringing ears was the sound of the necklace hitting the floor. How? I finally asked. I could feel myself beginning to shake. Her father never said, the cougar replied. I could see the saddened look on his muzzle. He... he sought me out and asked that I deliver Tekana's mark to you. He lowered his head. For what it is worth, I am sorry, brother. He said that she spoke of you often, and longed for the day you would come for her. I glanced down at the necklace on the floor, then back up to the cougar. My mind began screaming out questions, but my mouth simply wouldn't work. What could I really ask, though, that I didn't already know? What questions truly mattered? Taki was gone. The how and why of it in that moment were irrelevant. No single answer or explanation could bring her back, so why ask? I barely felt his hand on my shoulder. He said nothing when I returned his gaze. He simply nodded and turned to go. Again, my mind tried to call out to him, but my body simply refused to act. I could only watch as he gently closed the door. I heard the bolt click, followed by the faint sounds of his footsteps crunching through the snow. How long had I stood there? I can't remember. Much of that time still escapes my memory to this day. I was only barely aware of the door opening again, and of the chill on my fur as Grandfather stepped inside. I remember him guiding me to the table and sitting me down. I didn't register the blanket he threw over my shoulders, or the growing warmth from it. In fact, nothing truly came into focus until my gaze dropped to the table and to the necklace Grandfather placed there. Dallin, he said softly. What happened? I looked up slowly at him. I must have looked like all seven hells in one if his expression was any indication. She... she's gone, I choked out. I nudged the necklace. Grandfather looked at it, then back at me. His jaw opened as what I said finally registered with him. It was strange, the moment that followed. Hearing it from the cougar was surreal, as though I was watching myself from a distance. My senses knew the truth, but it still didn't feel, well, true. Seeing Grandfather's face transform from disbelief to that look of growing anguish, however, made the truth finally sink in. I felt the tears begin to well up. My body began to shake almost violently. I could barely breathe. My heart started pounding again, and I could hear a keening sound begin to fill the air. It wasn't until I felt Grandfather's arms around me that I realized the sound was coming from me. The moment he touched me, the dam burst. The shock from first hearing the news finally burned away, and it all came crashing down. I screamed until I could scream no more. I pounded on Grandfather's shoulder so hard I was convinced I broke something. Yet he still held me, gently rocking me as I wailed like a lost kitten. In my chest, it felt as though someone had reached in and torn out my heart, 
which only added to the screams. My lungs burned, as if they couldn't take in enough air to sustain me. I felt that I was being hollowed out, my entire being erupting from my mouth in the form of scream after strangled, pained scream. I don't remember stopping. I don't remember the screaming ever ceasing. I don't even remember the darkness that finally and mercifully consumed me. When I opened my eyes, I realized I was lying down. I was on my makeshift bed, tucked in like when I was a mere cub. The only thing missing was one of my stuffed toys from my old room. Despite the hollow feeling in my soul, I felt warm and undeservedly comfortable. My nose could pick up the unmistakable aroma of brewing tea. The spicy cinnamon scent was familiar to me. There was nothing special or significant about it. Such a flavor was available anywhere. However, it was a favorite blend in the Calamar household. On cold winter nights, Grandmother would brew a large pot of it, and we would all partake. Often, we would gather in the living room and either watch a movie or listen to one of Grandfather's seemingly endless supply of stories. To me, no matter where I was, that aroma would always remind me of home and of better days. Welcome back, grandson. My ears rotated to the voice, quickly followed by my head. I blinked several times until the form of Grandfather kneeling beside me came into focus. Here, let's get you up, he said, helping me into a sitting position. Drink this, he said, handing me the cup. Don't try to speak just yet. You tore your throat up rather harshly. This should help. I nodded and accepted the cup. My nose could smell the honey in the tea. I took a tentative sip and tried to swallow. That was a mistake. It felt like swallowing a glassful of razor blades. I coughed, tasted blood, and sighed. The ragged, phlegm-filled gurgle that escaped my throat unnerved me. You've been out for the better part of two days, Grandfather said. Your friends have all been here, watching over you when I could not. I told them what happened as best I could. I nodded, taking another small sip of the tea. This time, I could taste a hint of something more than just the tea and the honey. I placed some tokia extract in the tea, he explained. It should help your throat and keep your stomach settled. It's not too bitter, is it? I shook my head. Good. Regardless of what your grandmother says, not all medicines have to taste like medicine. His wry smile was infectious, though I could only manage a weak, thin one in response. He stayed with me until I'd drunk the last of the brewed medicine. The tokia extract did its job well, numbing my throat. He chuckled when I patted my stomach to indicate I was full. You should rest, he said. Your friends have explained your absence at school, and your landlord put in a call to the docks. I cocked my head in curiosity, but received only a smile and a wink from him in response. I must go, Dallin, he said, placing a hand on my shoulder. Will you be all right? I nodded. Good. Maximilian and Risha should be here in a few hours to check up on you. Until then, try to get some rest. I nodded and patted his hand. I mouthed the words, thank you, as he stood up and made for the door. As the door closed, I could feel the tears begin to well up once more, and I let them fall. 
I tried desperately to remember anything about her, but try as I might, I couldn't even recall what her voice sounded like. Even my memories of her angelic face seemed clouded over. The more I tried to remember, the fainter the memories seemed to become. I felt the need to growl, but the remembrance of the pain in my throat thankfully stopped that. I settled for a few deep breaths to try and calm down. It worked, but the memories of her still seemed to be fading. I could remember conversations with her, but instead of her voice, it was someone else's. Whose I couldn't say, but I knew it wasn't hers. I took a moment and gazed around my dwelling. It was then that I realized just how barren the place seemed to be. No decorations on the walls, no real curtains on the windows, and the only floor coverings, so to speak, of were the ceiling mats. How had I not noticed that before? Perhaps just her being here had been enough to remove the starkness of this place. With her gone, it was as though this dwelling ceased to be a real home. Was this how an exile was supposed to feel? Was this what these cursed dwellings were truly supposed to feel like? Had she been such a light in my life that the true dreariness of this place paled before her? The tears kept on, and I fought the urge to cry for fear of my throat. I'd been in motion since she left, and now that I was idle, I fully understood the reason. She was the light of this place. She'd not only given this place a soul, but she'd given me the same. She was the reason I got up in the morning. She was why I worked as hard as I did. She was why I set my sights on something more than merely existing as some outcast. She was my life. Now that she was gone, what did I have left? Thoughts of my training came to the forefront of my mind. Even if I did become a true Lautari, what would it land me in the end? Only a mercenary or some other violence-based occupation could truly take advantage of those skills. Was it even a goal worth working toward? Then again, I'd come far enough along that I was starting to see results from it all. So while it seemed pointless to continue, it also seemed pointless to stop. That, and there was something sadistically satisfying about standing over a defeated opponent, even if it was just a training hologram. Was that all I had, though? Was I only living now for violence? I thought then of my job at the docks, and the part I was playing of the industrious worker. It wasn't really an act, though. Like the sparring, I got a feeling of pride and accomplishment on those days when Alistair recognized me. There was potential there for a career if I kept at it, perhaps even a chance to work the spaceport side. All I had to do was keep doing what I was doing, and Darian Kane could make a name for himself at the Kerala City Port Authority. Would that be so bad? Would it be enough? I then thought of my friends. They'd been there when I was in a coma, and apparently while I was out for the past two days. I felt safe in the knowledge that they would do whatever it took to keep me from falling too far into any kind of depression or other emotional funk. It was something for which I could never truly repay them, no matter how long I lived. For the short term, they could fill the void she left behind. What about the long term, though? Could I even think that far ahead? Should I? I silently cursed my situation. Sitting here and thinking on it was doing nothing to help me resolve it. 
Then again, the constant motion I'd been in all those weeks prior hadn't helped either. It had been easy to not think about the coming weeks and months of solitude, knowing that Teki would be waiting for me at the end. With her gone, though, so too was that goal. That tether that connected me to the way out of this hellish double life was gone, leaving me adrift in this chaos. My mind traveled back to the first morning I woke up in this place. That morning, I had no purpose. I could have just stayed there, on the floor, curled up in a ball until my life drained out of me. But I didn't. Instead, I chose to rise from that pitiful situation and walk forward in my life. I chose to live that day and not to lay down and die. In the face of the chaos, on that day I squared my shoulders and met it with a growl of determination. How was this time any different? Another wave of cold truth washed over me. Yes, on that day I was determined to live despite not having a purpose. But only a few days later I ended up with a goal. Protect Teki. The entire summer revolved around me trying to keep her safe. That we fell in love was an unexpected but welcome side effect, but as I thought about it, I realized that as much as I wanted to protect her, I also wanted a purpose to my life. I needed a purpose to my life. Above work, above training, above survival itself, I needed something to work for. Something to live for. I closed my eyes again and sighed. The Tokia extract was taking its toll on me, and I could feel myself begin to drift. I welcomed the darkness once more, and let myself fall into a deep, mercifully dreamless sleep. There were still questions to answer and grief to deal with, but for now, they could wait for just a little bit longer. I wasn't sure what pulled me back to consciousness first. The hushed voices that made my ears twitch, or the rhythmic purring I felt radiating throughout my body. I knew the latter wasn't coming from me, and that was when I realized there was something, or rather, someone, laying beside me. Well, beside me was perhaps too light a term. No, this person was right up next to me, an arm over my chest, and their muzzle buried in my neck. My eyes opened in slits to discover the arm holding me was clad in black fur. Confusion turned to terrifying clarity when I heard a contented sigh beside me. Risha was the person laying, no, snuggling down with me. Panic quickly washed away any earlier feelings of comfort or bliss. How long had she been here? Why was she in bed with me? What about Max? What would he think of this if he walked in and saw? I knew nothing had happened, or if it had, I was far too gone to realize it. In either case, this situation had all the potential to be blown way out of proportion. Slowly, I tried to move her arm off my chest. She let out an almost childish mule and tightened her grip on me. I suspected she was dreaming it was Max beside her, not me. I tried again, but she was having none of it. I felt her muzzle press into my neck right at its most sensitive point. When I felt the tender nip there, my resolve to extricate myself from this started fading. If she kept this up, I soon wouldn't care if Max found us in a compromising position. Risha, I whispered, still mindful of my damaged throat. Risha, 
Come on, wake up. I tried to shake her off, but damned if she didn't pull herself even tighter to me and start moaning rather loudly. Despite her continuing to nuzzle at my neck, all I could think of was Max and what he would think. I knew they became a couple during their summer vacation, and to have that jeopardized by something like this was unthinkable. If only my throat wasn't so wrecked, at least I could have... Aw, isn't that cute? Indeed. I whipped my head around to the voices and beheld two people sitting at the table, watching me with rather confident smirks on their muzzles. The first speaker was Max, who looked like he was trying as hard as he could not to burst out laughing. The other was Grandfather, who was a bit more composed than my panther friend. I alternated glances between Risha and Max, trying to figure out just what in the seven hells was going on. We got here a couple of hours ago, Max explained. You were tossing and turning like crazy, so Risha did her best to calm you down. He looked over at his sleeping girlfriend. Looks like she was more tired than I thought. As if on cue, I felt Risha begin to stir beside me. I turned to look at her just as her eyes opened. Like I had, I expected her to suddenly realize the position she was in and move off me with all due haste. Instead, she merely yawned, squeezed me a bit tighter, and then sighed. Sleep well? she asked sleepily. All I could do was nod in response. Hmm, good, she said. You had me worried for a bit there, hon. I patted her arm and smiled. You're welcome, she said. After a few more minutes, we both rose and headed for the table. Before I did, though, I retrieved my tablet from my book bag. I would need it for the time being if I were to say anything. Grandfather placed a mug of tea in front of me. I brought it up and could smell the tokia extract once more. I took a sip and then called up a blank text file on my tablet. I began typing and a moment or two later turned it toward Grandfather. Won't they miss you? If the elder of the Tiger's Paw Clan chooses to take a walk on a calm winter's night, then who is anyone to challenge me? he asked with a slightly triumphant smile. He then sighed, and I saw him slump slightly. In truth, I have learned something. Tarmon finally confided in me what has been happening with the Council. I tapped some more on my tablet. What took so long? The Council often keeps to itself when it comes to internal matters, he explained. They believe it's always best to show a united, infallible front when dealing with the clans, lest they be perceived as weak or conflicted. As it is, Tarmon took a sizable risk in talking to me. Sorry. Didn't mean to sound impatient. Not at all. Grandfather took a sip of his tea. Many on the council are growing tired of Lars' continued influence on them. The Kalpak was the source of that influence. As Kalshera, many believed he had the right to collaborate with the council as though he were a member. Though he has his supporters, they are few in number. His loss at the Kumal made him lose a considerable amount of face among them. Desperate. Indeed. The council ordered Lars to put up the Kalpak as a challenge to his clan's supposed divine appointment, or some drivel. If he lost, Risha offered, then he would be unworthy of his station. Yeah, Max said. And with that loss, the Fang would have to slum it out with the rest of you. Well put, Maximilian. Max winced. 
He hated it when people used his formal name. The Midnight Fang would no longer be protected from repercussion or retribution for their deeds. So, you can see why Lars is indeed so desperate. Council still afraid of me? Grandfather chuckled. <laughs> yes. There have been several confirmed sightings of Alautari still on the clan lands. Confirmed? You have more allies than you think, grandson, Grandfather said with a wink. They don't know who the Lautari is, but if the mere mention of it is enough to keep Lars' voice muted, then more than a few clans are willing to keep it going. My eyes must have looked like saucers based on the smiles I was seeing on everyone's muzzles. The clans were rallying behind me, in a way. I was amazed, both at the tangential support of the other clans, but also at their hate of the Rondoki. How long had this been going on? Young as I was, I only really knew their hatred of my former clan. However, it seemed that the Midnight Fang had made many more enemies over their long history. But how long would it last? I typed out my next sentence slowly. Does Lars have it? I cannot say, Grandfather replied. Some do suspect that he does, though, given what he stands to lose. But nothing can be proven yet. Not enough. No, you're right, he sighed. The Lautari scare is a double-edged sword in this case. Lars cannot make a move against us or any other clan but the council cannot move against him. So, all hands are tied. Precisely. It was a deadlock, and one based on a lie at that. While I felt relieved that some clans were willing to perpetuate the lie, there was no way it could last. One of the clans would give eventually, either from pressure by the Rondoki, or perhaps upon seeing an opportunity to further themselves. Every moment gained from this chaos could be the last. This can't last for very long, Risha insisted, giving a voice to my thoughts. Eventually, someone's going to demand results. True, Grandfather said. But you would be surprised at the hatred many clans feel towards the Midnight Fang. In all this turmoil, things may escalate and further prevent Lars from gaining his opportunity. As it is, if he were to discover the Kalpak now, it would raise more questions than provide answers. For now, yes, Risha said. But a month from now? A year? True, Grandfather relented. Desperation on either side will eventually lead to something giving. Unless this comes to a decisive end, the Rondoki may yet prevail. A decisive end. A clear winner, and nothing more. Lars and the Rondoki would never stop. They had too much to lose. Eventually, the council would have to abandon the quest for the Lautari, and he'd be there to guide them to their next objective. Risha was right. The fear and misinformation would only last for so long, despite the hatred felt toward the Midnight Fang. Eventually, it would die down, and they would once again turn eyes on my family. What then? What fate awaited my former clan at the hands of an aggravated elder with a known sadistic reputation? What do I have to become? Violence, Stalin. Taki's words echoed through my mind, and in her voice this time. Violence. I had to become violence.
Sometimes, grandson, death is necessary. Violence. Death. Necessary. Cross's third option. It was the only way. I let out a quiet sigh of resignation. He'd known, hadn't he? He must have. How could he not? His constant pushing me. His confession to a bit of vanity in my training. He knew. I wondered if he'd been preparing me for this revelation all this time, or if it was all some happy coincidence. In the end, I suppose it didn't really matter. My stomach twisted in knots as the magnitude of the truth settled in. Grandfather was right. The Rondoki would eventually push past this scare and continue their campaign against my family. That is, unless someone stopped them first. Piety held them back for now, but it wouldn't keep them quiet forever. Before they broke, I needed to act. Like in the Kumal, there could be only one victor in this feud. One decisive victor. Only one way to stop this. Grandfather looked up from my tablet. What do you mean, Dallin? Can't run. You'd all die. Can't appeal. We'd all die. Only one way to stop this. I paused as a nauseous feeling welled up within. I took several deep breaths to calm down before I resumed typing. I remember how much my hand trembled as I tapped out the message. Go to Rondoki Estate. Find Kalpak. Take it back no matter cost. Everyone's eyes widened when they read the message. I heard Risha gasp as she put a hand to her mouth. After that, the silence was almost stifling. Gazes alternated between the screen and me, as though no one could possibly believe it was my hand that had written that message. Max was the first to break the silence. Um, pardon me, he said. But are you out of your freaking mind, Dallin? It's madness, Grandfather added. Dallin, there's no way you'd survive that. You said so yourself. It's suicide. I took the tablet back and tapped out another message. Not today. Not tomorrow. Maybe not for a long time. Not ready yet. But we'll train until I am. Grandfather made a motion to say something, but then he paused. Max wasn't so hesitant. So what? he asked. So, you train for a few years, get your black belt or whatever it is that makes you this thing, then what? You march in there and get yourself killed, Dallin, that's what. You're still just one guy. Indeed, Grandfather said. One guy who laid low a handful of Shatlia. Max turned his head as if to argue, but Grandfather held up his hand. I'm not encouraging this, Maximilian. Make no mistake. It is still an insane path, but from what I've seen, it's not an entirely impossible path. What are you talking about? Risha asked, almost frantic. You're condoning this? You're telling him that it's all right for him to... to... I reached out a hand and clasped her shoulder. Her gaze was one of worry, anger, and shock. I kept my hand on her shoulder while typing with the other. I don't want this. No one does. But I must do something, or we all die. Why, Dallin? 
What do you owe them? What? She stood up and made for the door, and Max quickly followed. He caught her just as she was about to leave. She fought him at first, but eventually settled for crying into his shoulder while he held her. I knew she would never agree with my decision, but in time I hoped she would accept it. When all this was over, if I survived, I hoped that something of our friendship could still be salvaged. Dallin, I turned to Grandfather. You owe your clan nothing, least of all your life. After what happened, what I allowed to happen, why? He was right, but I thought back to my first retreat. I remembered the fire and its lesson. In that lay the answer. I picked up my tablet and typed out my last message. Because after I save you, I'll need all of you to save me. I left it at that. In truth, there really wasn't much more to say. Grandfather stared at me for several moments before slowly nodding in understanding. He knew what was coming, and he knew what the aftermath would be if I succeeded. If I failed, I would die and no doubt the clan would eventually fall. The ruse would only last so long, and after that, nothing would save the Calamars from the Midnight Fang's wrath. I knew getting the Kalpak from the Rondoki would involve blood and violence, assuming it was even there. That cold realization settled in the pit of my stomach with Grandfather's nod. He knew what I was facing, and he knew that if I managed it, like that fire from my retreat, my soul would need all the love and support it could get. I glanced over at Max and Risha, who were still holding each other. I hoped that they too would be there when this was all over, and I hoped they would someday forgive me for what I was now committed to. I was now on the path back to honor and to family. I would see this through or die trying. And God's help anyone who dare to stand in my way. The Beginning And that's our story. In 2005, my father passed away. I'm not sure if the original podcast feed mentions that, but for months after it happened, I remember not remembering what his voice sounded like. I could remember everything else about him but that, and his voice was pretty distinctive. I don't think I sound anything like him. Lord knows I can't sing like he did. But it took until long after his funeral for me to finally begin to remember. These days, we're lucky. With social media, record-on-demand devices, and the ability to capture every moment of our lives in some digital format, we'll always have some way to remember every little thing about our loved ones. I'll admit, I scoff a lot at social media and how pervasive it's become in our society. But when I think about it more, I realize that it's a powerful tool for making memories. I just wish it had been more prevalent when my parents were alive. So, where do we go from here? That's the big question, isn't it? Well, as I've mentioned before, I have a couple of storylines that I'm working on. The first one is, obviously, A New Beginning, which is the sequel to Outcast. It's a bit more involved than Outcast is and introduces a few new characters into the world. 
The second project I'm working on is based on a fan fiction I wrote for Chris Lester's Metamore City podcast, now rebranded as The Raven and the Writing Desk. The first story, the one I submitted and had read on the show, has undergone a few revisions, and next week I'll be reading that one on this show. It'll give everyone a break from Outcast and give me a little more time to make sure the first couple of chapters of A New Beginning are shipshape and worthy of you guys. So, next week, get ready for Rebirth, my attempt at playing in the magical, mystical world of Metamore City. I'll put a link to Chris's podcast in the show notes, and I highly recommend you check it out. I think you'll all like it. And with that, I think I'll end it here. As always, thank you for tuning in, and if you'd like to leave some feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com, or you can leave a soundbite via the SpeakPipe app at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.